You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I was saying that it's kind of funny with, you know, when you say Merry Christmas, say Merry Christmas, and you say Happy Mother's Day, and people look back at you and they go, Happy Mother's Day. It's like, oh, wait, wait, yeah. <laughs> You know what, today is also in the, uh, in the church calendar, it is Good Shepherd Sunday. And Good Shepherd Sunday in the history of the church is a Sunday where you focus in on the guidance and discernment that Jesus gives us to navigate through life. I think it's kind of good to spend a Sunday thinking about that as well. Um, and one of the things I was going to point out, um, I'll probably point this out in, uh, in the weeks ahead, is... At our church, we actually have a um, pastoral apprenticeship program, and uh, we've run this for a number of years. And uh, basically, it's an internship for, for people who are trying to discern whether or not God is guiding them into ministry. And so it runs from uh, September to April. Uh, there's a number of faculty who teach uh, during the uh, pastoral apprenticeship program. This year, we've had, uh, I think, five, five apprentices. And so we've had this every year. And so if you're interested in this, you can go onto our website under Pastoral Apprenticeship Program. You can find out more about it. If you have any questions, uh, you can talk to myself if you like. And uh, yeah, it's just something to consider, especially if you're younger and you're in school or between school and you're trying to figure out, okay, what, what are the next steps in my life? I think this is a really good program. Okay, so let's shift gears. And um, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know we've been walking through the Ten Commandments. And we're, we're, we're making our way, we're making our way. Today we hit the second commandment, so we still got a ways to go. But uh, we've been going through the Ten Commandments for the simple and profound reason that the, the living God of the universe gives us the Ten Commandments for two reasons, to protect and enhance a life of freedom. The Ten Commandments are all about freedom. And uh, if you don't believe me, go back and listen to the first two, because <laughs> this is something we talked about. Um, last week, we looked at the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And we, we, we talked about how the first commandment is actually pivotal. It's, it's, it's key, because if you get the first commandment right, the other nine kind of fall into place. You get the first one wrong, the other nine will also kind of go, go wrong. Everything will collapse. Uh, and then we looked at how God gives us the first commandment as a promise, reminding us when he says, you shall know other gods before me, he's not saying, oh, I have to be number one. He's saying, I need to be number one because only I can fulfill you. Only I can meet your deepest needs, those deepest desires. If you put anything else before me, these will be gods that fail. Only I can fulfill your deepest desires in life. Only I can make your life flourish. So today we're going to look at the second commandment. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Um, second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to look at verse 4 through 6 today. In honor of God's word, let's stand together as we read this. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, the thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Father, we come before you and we recognize we are completely dependent upon you. You are the source of all life. You are life. And our lives will only work in so far as they're aligned to you. And so we pray that you would speak to us. What is this commandment all about? Speak into our hearts. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Soften hard hearts and then grant us courage to respond to whatever you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so one of the questions, and maybe this is a question that comes to your mind, but one of the questions that always comes to my mind when I read the second commandment is this. How does the second commandment relate or differ from the first commandment? Um, I mean, how are graven images different from other gods? Well, here's the thing. The second commandment is related to the first commandment, obviously, but it's also a logical consequence. It's a logical implication of the first commandment. The first commandment is all about having. The second commandment is all about making. The first commandment is about relationship. The second commandment is about an activity, what we do. The first commandment concerns the object of worship. The second concerns the mode of worship. And the first commandment rules out other gods. The second commandment rules out making the true God into something he is not. Okay, so that's the difference. So we're talking in this passage about graven images, or also known as idols. What are these graven images that Yahweh permit, prohibits? What is an idol? Well, an idol, an idol is anything that our heart creates and then clings to for ultimate security. An idol is anything that the heart creates and then clings to for ultimate security. And in, the, in Hebrew, there's some pretty fun words for idol. <laughs> there's a word pesel, which means a carved, hammered, forged object made of wood, stone, or metal. There's a word called temuna, which means a form or shape or likeness. Of something. And some of the words are actually quite fun and they kind of reveal what the Hebrew people thought about idols. And so there's this word called uh, gilulim, which the Hebrew root of this word means roll. Roll. So actually means is a pellet of dung. <laughs> a pellet of dung or a shapeless loggy thing. <laughs> Sorry. So keep that image in your mind as we proceed. <laughs> but in sum, an idol in biblical thinking is anything that we make as, as a substitute to the worship of God. It's seen as vanity, it's seen as emptiness, and it seems to be as much value as a load of dung, right? So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the second commandment. And I thought we'd do it in the same kind of way we did last week. We're just going to look at some questions around the second commandment and make our way through the text. So the first question that comes to mind is what's the big deal about graven images? What does an idol or an image do? 
Well, an image is meant to capture the meaning of something or the meaning of someone beyond the image itself. So think of a photograph, right? You think of a photograph, and I've seen photographs, really good photographers, and you look at something, and you're like, wow, that's an amazing photograph. What an amazing depiction of whatever the place happens to be or whatever the thing happens to be. And you can say, that is a really good likeness of the original. But here's the thing. It's not the same. You know, a photograph of, you know, you think of, of um, Westminster Abbey. It's fine. But it's not the same as being inside it. And so a photograph is always going to fall short. And, and there is a danger. There is a danger in thinking that the representation is as good as the original thing. Because it's not. And just as a kind of a geeky aside, that is one of the issues I have with the advent and the growth of VR technology, virtual reality technology, and the metaverse. Because it draws you into this thing called cyberspace. But cyberspace isn't real space. It's false space. And it presents a reality that's very appealing. And a lot of people spend a lot of time in virtual reality. And I know who you are. No. <laughs> But you can spend a lot of time in that. And it is. I had those glasses. And I tried, well, I'm climbing a mountain. This is very cool. But it's not the same. But the danger is, is we start to think, yeah, this is just as good as the real thing. Because it's not. And you know what? This is, this is the issue that we see a few chapters ahead in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 32 it's a well-known story when the people of God make a golden calf. Remember that story? They make a golden calf, and they pretend that it is Yahweh. They pretend that it is God. And on one hand, in Exodus 32, when the people make this golden calf, they're celebrating. They're celebrating God. They actually are. They're celebrating freedom from Egypt. They're celebrating freedom from slavery. They're saying, yeah, God has set us free. Let us celebrate this freedom with a feast to God. And while we're at it, while we're at it, while we're celebrating God, let's create a representation of God and bow down before it and say, yeah, way to go, God. And so it's, it's a reminder on one hand that you can make idols, you can make graven images for really good reasons. They want to celebrate God. And so the story is, is make this golden calf, and why a golden calf? How does this golden calf or this bull, actually more likely a bull, how does this represent God? Well, you think about it. Think about a bull. Well, a bull represents a lot of things. A bull represents fertility in life. They're very, you know, fertile animals, right? Um, and in Israel, they've been stuck in the desert for so long. And it's a desert, it's a wilderness, and they're hoping and they're longing for God to bring them to the land of milk and honey where there's flourishing, where there's fertility. And so they would think, well, this God, the God we worship, represents fertility in life. So far, so good. The other thing about a bull is that a bull is powerful. Well, God is powerful. He just delivered us out of Israel, he, or out of Egypt, uh, and set us free. This is, so our God is strong and powerful. A bull is strong and powerful. And it's a golden calf. 
And gold is an image of prosperity. And it's, and it's a reminder that God is a God who provides for our needs and will make us prosper in life. And so in many ways, the golden calf, it, shows, it represents a lot of things about God. But it is an insufficient picture. That's the problem. Because God is also love. God is also shepherd. God is kind. He's gentle. And none of these things are captured in a bull. What about his justice? What about his holiness? See, the problem when you make a representation of something is that the representation will always fall short. Okay? The second question. How does the use of images affect our relationship with God? Well, essentially, they put God into a box. They put God into a box. And they put God in a box in four ways. One, images limit God. No image, no image can capture who God is. Images or idols limit or distort our vision. And so I'll always end up with a picture that falls short of who God is. Our mental image of God is inadequate. And so I always kind of react when somebody comes up to me and goes, David, you know, I know you're a Christian, you go to church, but I like to think of God as, and I'm like, stop right there. Stop right there. Because whatever you come up, whatever comes out with next is going to be insufficient. It's going to be insufficient. Our, 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 our imagination of God will always be too small. In fact, we need to receive God on his own terms because the God we worship does not play hide and seek. He's revealed himself in his word. So allow that to shape how you finish that sentence. I like to think of God as, right? The other thing about images is they can lead us down dangerous paths. How? Well, you we think about going back to the golden calf or the bull. It's an insufficient picture of God, yes. But here's the other problem, is that when the Israelites were worshiping the bull, they started to associate God with things associated with a bull, which is actually not the things of God. So one of the things associated with a bull would be sexual prowess. And so they started thinking about God in terms of like this fertility cult and temple prostitutes and those sorts of things. And so it actually leads you and distorts who God is. And sometimes when we use language to describe God, it could dis- not just limit who God is, it distorts our understanding of God. Now, I have a geeky example uh, to give you. So years and years and years and years ago, I used to work with youths. I used to be kind of like a youth pastor. And truth be told, I was not a very good one. Um, and part of my issue is I try to bridge the gap and connect with the youth by using contemporary cultural examples. And they were just really, really lame. But this one time, I was teaching youth, and I was in Vancouver, and most of our youth were from all different backgrounds, mostly Cambodian, Vietnamese backgrounds, and different, different places, and this is in, in Mount Pleasant area. And I remember I was, I was speaking to the youth, and I thought, have I got a good illustration for you? Because I knew that on the radio, the most popular song was a song by the Backstreet Boys. 
And I'm like, the Backstreet Boys, they're popular. I will bridge. I will bridge the gap. <laughs> and so there's a song by the Backstreet Boys, and I think it's called um, As Long As You Love Me. Is that what it's called? Yeah. You see something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's going to be stuck in your head all day. Yeah, I know. Um, and the song goes in, in the chorus. is like, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you did as long as you love me. I'm like, what a picture of God, right? And I said to the youth, I said, hey, you need to know that it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you did. What matters is that God loves you and you can love God and that's what it's all about. I'm like, what a brilliant illustration, except all the youth were giggling. I'm like, hey, God, what, what, what? I said, this is a good example. And they're like, David, are you good? Have you watched the music video? I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> watch the music video. And so I watched it, and then I said, oh, that's quite a sexualized uh, video. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just like very. And I thought, well, what image came to their mind of God while I'm giving this great illustration is a completely distorted <laughs> picture of God. But that's the problem. That's the problem when we try to do this. It not only limits God, but it can distort our, our image of God. And the other issue is that images, they can localize God. And what that means is that, you know, we think that God is captured in a statue or in a mental image or in an experience. Or sometimes I hear people say, you know, I, only when I'm out hiking in the woods can I worship God. Those sorts of things. Outside of that, I can't. And finally, I think, I think images stifle imagination. When we try to limit God or, or box him in to an experience, we, we, we limit God and we miss his, the splendor and the glory of God and the mystery of God. He, he's so much bigger than we realize. And we eliminate holy wonder. Um. I remember this one fellow, he would often, as a, as a mental exercise, what he would do is he would lie in his bed and he'd think about the planet on which we live, you know, planet Earth, and he'd think about the planet Earth in relationship to other planets, in relationship to the sun, and then he'd look at the solar system, and then he'd, he'd, his, his mind would go to galaxies, and then galaxies upon galaxies, and then the universe, and then, if you're big into Doctor Strange, multiverses, um, you know, and his mind would just go, and he'd get to the place where he'd ask the question, not who are you, God, but what are you? You're so much bigger than we realize. And the problem with images is that they reduce God. And images try to control God and undermine his freedom. So thirdly, why is idolatry so attractive then? Why is it an attractive temptation? I mean, if idols are nothing or are so dangerous, why would anybody want to make an idol in the first place? Well, for the simple reason is that if you make an idol of God, a representation of God, chances are this God will more likely wink at your sins than give you grief. He's the kind of God who's your buddy. Hey, it's okay to do those things. It's fine. It's fine. And the idol of our own making is one that we can control, that we receive on our own terms, and he's kind of like a cosmic Santa Claus who will wink at our indiscretions. So that's why it's attractive. 
But then the challenge we face is a challenge. It's a big challenge. Is how do you relate to an invisible God? If we can't make graven images, how do we relate to an invisible God? And this is a tough one. It's always been a tough one for the people of God from the Old Testament to Christians living in Coquitlam in 2022. How do we relate to an invisible God? It seems like a bit of an advantage that God is invisible. And uh, I love, um, yeah, I love Eugene Peterson on this because idolatry seems to have a lot going on for it. I mean, do I have a quote by Peterson up there? Yeah, I love this quote. He goes, he goes, the Baal priests, those are like pagan priests who you read about in the Old Testament. The Baal priests could gather crowds that outnumbered followers of Yahweh, of God, 20 to 1. There was sex. There was excitement. There was music. There was ecstasy. There was dance. Hey, we got girls over here, friends. We got statues, girls, festivals. This is great stuff. And what did the Hebrews have in response? The word. And it's tough to compete. So does God give us any help in this? Well, I think he does. See, God knows our hearts, and he has helped us by giving us an image of himself. And so if you want to know what God is like, well, then you turn to the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ. And you read, you read that God, he, he reveals himself to us in his Son. And by revealing himself to us in his son, it, it avoids all sorts of problems. Because Jesus, if you look at Jesus and his life, Jesus does not limit God's glory. He glorifies God. Jesus does not lead us astray. He reveals God. Jesus is the place where we meet God. And Jesus is the one image of God that is really God. And we're not left to our imaginations. And we can worship him without committing adultery. And so we read, you know, these passages. Um, in, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we can worship Jesus without committing idolatry. And so I like that you can rephrase the second commandment in a positive way. You can say this. The second commandment is basically saying this. Behold my son. Love him, and you will never put me in a box. So then the question comes, oh, what can we make then? This is about graven images. Are we, does this mean we can't have art? Well, I mean, that's what the Puritans used to think in the 17th century. They would take all art off the wall and just paint everything white and just say, focus on the word, just the word alone. But I don't think that's really fair, because if you read in Scripture, there's lots of art. Look at the description of the tabernacle. Look at the description of the temple. There is lots of art, and art is fine. The danger becomes that we don't transform art into the sacralization of images, depictions of God that gives us an advantage over him. Okay, But art is fine. You never come across a prophet in the Old Testament 
giving Israel grief over art. Okay, so that's important. I think artists, um, the gift of artists, and many of you are artists, you need to know that there is, there, there's a lot of space for you to exercise your gift in the context of the church. It's really important. The other question is this. What are the consequences of idolatry? When we practice idolatry, what are the consequences? Well, what does God say in his word? This is, this is tough reading here. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. When we make idols, when we distort God, when we limit him, we read that God is angry, he is jealous, and displeased. Now, what's going on here? Well, again, we're trying to distort and tame the untamable, the untamable one. And the commandment reminds us that God is a, a jealous God, not in the way we think of jealousy, but in a way that he genuinely desires the best for us. And when we go down paths that lead to destruction, he jealously wants you to align your life to life. And he knows when we submit our lives to him on his terms, our lives will flourish. And he knows that anything other than he truly is, and when we worship that, it'll lead us on a path of destruction. And so the point in this passage is that idolatry affects you, yes, but it doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you. It affects your family. And so if I reduce God into a harsh taskmaster who is hard to please, before whom I need to cringe and serve with fear, with a little bit of resentment, including. And my kids see this, that this is how I behave before God. This is how I think of God. How are my kids going to grow up thinking about God? It's going to affect them. If a father thinks that God is never satisfied with his service, that he always needs to prove himself to make himself worthy before God, how will his daughter see God? In the same way. If a woman's image of God says that she has to have it all together before she's accepted by God, and then she treats her son in the same way, and the son adopts the same vision, and he won't even come to the Lord's table because he thinks he's not worthy enough. Right? The point is this, is that it affects your family. And we read in the passage that idolatry punishes down to the third and fourth generation. Why third and fourth generation? Because in the Hebrew mindset, in any household, you had up to four generations. And so once idolatry is established by you know, parents, it's going to affect generation after generation. The entire household is going to be affected by this. But here's the really good news. And we can't miss this. And it's this, is that anger and grace are not equally balanced. For those who, who worship God, that God will show steadfast love to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
And uh, Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke puts it this way. He says, Moses lived 3,000 years ago. But in reality, that's about 120 generations. And here you get a picture of thousands of generations, which just shows you how deep and how wide God's grace goes, that, that judgment and grace are not equal. Grace is always greater. In fact, grace, love and grace are 500 times as powerful as anger and judgment. Okay, last question. What do we do with the idols, these false images that we have made? Well, we do what you're supposed to do all throughout Scripture and all throughout history is you smash them. You destroy them. And here's the thing. Don't play with them. Don't just put them aside. Ruthlessly smash them. And so how do you discover these idols? Well, I think by living in community by being immersed in God's word, and when your friend says to you, yeah, you're a Christian, right? I like to think of God. Then you just stop him right there. <laughs> I like to think of God as my buddy. Okay, let's, let's look at God's word and see what he, how he reveals himself. And when we do this, we resist putting God into a box. And do you know why, ultimately, we need to resist putting God into a box? Do you know why? It's because God does not put us into a box. God knows that you are way more wonderful and complex than how others may see you. Others may see you, oh, you're nothing but. But God looks at you and says, no, 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 no. You're way, way more than that. There's a depth, there's a wonder to being a human being, to being you. And I think this is an important implication of this commandment. One of the implications of this commandment is, yes, we do not put God in a box. But one of the implications is this. We don't put people into a box either. We don't reduce people to categories so we don't have to deal with it. And so you know what this commandment really pushes back against? It really pushes back against Twitter. Or Instagram. Or any kind of social media where we can write people off. Where we put people in a box and say we don't have to deal with them. Well, after all, they are... It pushes back. Pushes back against racism. Pushes back against prejudice, ageism, or any other ism that threatens to reduce or box in another human being. And we need to remember that the world around us and the people we encounter are wondrous. They are mysteries. They're, they're so full of wonder. So when you talk to somebody, do you assess them, box them, and reject them? Or do you see them as made in the image of God and with wonder and marvel to who they are? See, this commandment invites us to embrace the unpredictable God whose mercies are new every morning. That God is a God of surprises. And it pushes back, this commandment pushes back any temptation to make your Christian life rote or boring. We are dealing with the holy wild. We are dealing with God. And one of the things that drives me crazy 
is when I see people walk away and say, well, the Christian life is so boring, I want to have nothing more to do with it. It's just this. And like, well, you have a distorted view of the Christian life because we are dealing with God. And God is so much greater, so much more wonderful than you can imagine. He is the living God of the universe. And so we need to fight against reduction, reductionism. There's an old song by uh, one of my favorite singers, a guy named Michael Card, and the song is called Joy in the Journey. And uh, in the song, it's basically an invitation into the life that Jesus makes possible through the cross. And there's a great line in it. And it says, there is a joy in the, journey, joy in the journey. And it says, there is a wonder and wildness to life. And there's freedom to those who obey. And so the paradox of the Christian life is that when we obey, when we walk with Jesus, we experience the wonder and the wildness of life. And there's no life like it. Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's our second commandment. Let's pray. God of grace, God of wonder, Lord, we come before you and we just cry out how great you are. And we confess that so often we try to reduce you into something that we can control and manage, but you are not a manageable God. You're the holy wild. And you are sovereign over all the universe. All that exists, exists because of you. And so, Lord, we come before you and we want to receive you on your terms as you have revealed yourself. And again, forgive us for making you too small. Forgive us for thinking that the Christian life is something that's rote or boring. The reality is, is that you have invited us into your story that you're weaving in history. And that every person that we lock eyes with is made in your image and has incredible potential. So forgive us for the way we, we put people into a box, whether by the color of their skin or their socioeconomic, wherever they happen to be, economically or, or because of their age or whatever happens to be. Lord, we pray that we would lock eyes, whoever we lock eyes with, that we would see as having dignity and value because they're made in your image. We thank you that you don't put us into a box. And our desire is never to put you into a box and not to put one another into a box. But to live in the freedom that you have for us. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.